Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories. Some are profound and challenging, while others are more common and relatable, shared with honesty and humor. But all of these stories reveal what God can do in our lives when we trust Him with the details. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Kelly, from the Storytellers Live team. On each episode, you'll hear a different woman share her story of God's transforming love. These stories are recorded in a live setting at weekly local gatherings, where we're aiming to build community through sharing, connecting, and encouraging one another. Most importantly, these stories reveal the faithfulness of God and how He can take what's ordinary and broken and exchange it for extraordinary and redeemed. Happy New Year, everyone. We're so excited to be back with you. And we are kicking off 2020 with our first story of the year, and it comes from Katy, Texas. Our storyteller, Courtney, talks honestly about the many masks that she's worn over the years to cover up what she was truly feeling, whether it was fear, shame, loss, or pain. We all fall victim to the lie that we're supposed to be okay at all times, and that if we just pretend everything's okay, it will be. And the problem with that mentality is that we're either in denial or we're essentially trusting ourselves to fix the problem or provide the answer rather than trusting God. Even worse, by hiding behind our masks, we cover up the incredible work that God does through those hard moments. As Courtney has begun replacing the masks of falseness with truth and reality, God has used her vulnerability to display His faithfulness and to bring hope to other women who are tired of holding up their own masks. Courtney's story is a great reminder that being real is beautiful and powerful. Today's episode is sponsored by Bulo, a company founded by Delphine Carter, one of our past storytellers, whom you can hear in episode 22. Many women struggle to maintain job demands while meeting family and household responsibilities. Typically, women feel forced to take the off-ramp and pause their career until the children get older. This has a financial impact on the family, and for many women, confidence and ambition can suffer. Bulo offers another option. The Bulo platform services part-time and contract work opportunities with companies that respect your choice to blend work and family. Wherever you are on your career path, still working full-time but looking for options, or ready to jump back in, Bulo can help you find your right professional fit. Go to BuloSolutions.com to take the first step. That's B-O-U-L-O Solutions.com. Thanks, guys. I'm glad that you are all here. Uh, I appreciate that the Storyteller crew trusted uh, me to tell my story um, and invited me to do so. I am pretty sure, like Hethel said, I have a little bit of a crazy life pretty consistently. So I would be willing to bet there's a piece of this story that every one of you will relate to at some point. I made notes and then I went back and highlighted them and I'm, I'm pretty sure I won't say anything on here, but I'll use them for reference. Um, a little bit about myself. I am married to Scott. He is my very, very best friend. We are very close and always have been. We do have six children. Uh, they range in age from 27, 21, 19, look, I have to use this paper, 17, 16, and 8. They, they're all starting to have birthdays. A lot of our birthdays fall on the fall, 
fall in the fall time season. And so uh, they change ages and then I forget. I'm like, I don't remember how old you are. Um, we currently have three out of the house and three that are living at home with us. And uh, Hethel came to me before this was the inception of this. And she said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And when we do it, I want you to tell your story. And then we laughed because I wasn't real sure which one. <laughs> I was like, well... I've got a plethora of stories. Which one would you like for me to share? And uh, and so we've prayed a lot um, leading up to this day. Um, one of the things that you have to do when you're exploring what story am I going to tell? It's it's encouraged. You know, take make a timeline. Go back, look at your youth. Where did God show up? What what is what does your story look like? And uh, so that's what I'm going to do. Scott and I married young. We had babies young. Um, I was actually finishing a radiology degree whenever we had our second child or whenever I got pregnant for our second child. Um, we knew from the beginning I would be a stay-at-home mom. Um, Scott's brother had uh, brain tumors. I'm sorry. I will be weepy. I'll explain at the end why. Um, all of his life. So a radiology degree um, and me getting pregnant and having children was really not an option for my husband. But I was too far in to change. And, uh, so he said, look, I'm going to work really hard. I want you to be a stay at home mom. And I was like, Oh yes, be happy to stay at home. That sounds so glamorous. Um, after baby number four, I realized that, uh, there was nothing glamorous about staying home with tiny kids all under, um, you know, the, the middle four were born in five years. So they were all very close in age, lots of diapers, lots of diapers. Oh, wow, the diapers. And um, so anyway, so I needed some sanity. And um, and I said, look, let's maybe we find a Mother's Day Out program so I can at least go to the grocery store or have an adult conversation. I would have gone anywhere for an adult conversation. Um, at that point, I thought maybe a career was a good idea. I said, I saw my friends doing it. But then I realized, well, if I went back to work, I would work to pay for full-time daycare. That doesn't make sense. Let's let's try Mother's Day out. So we did. And one of the things that I was invited to was a very basic uh, coffee Bible study. And the, I mean, basic to the point that they gave you the New Testament Bible. We wouldn't even dare go into the Old Testament. And the Bible was numbered. You know, the pages were numbered. Um, the chapters were numbered differently. And so when you, when it asked you a question in the homework, you, it said the answer is on this page. <laughs> like you can find the answer. There was no digging. It was like, here's the answer. But they were fun and, and they gave me a, a taste of something I had not previously known. And, um, and I was sold out. I absolutely was enthralled with what I was learning and I wanted to learn more. Um, see, I was raised Catholic. I attended Catholic school. So I was always taught about God. I knew about that religion, everything that needed to be known about it. But I didn't understand the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And, um, and so things began to shift whenever I was a child. He was just a big, scary being that oversaw all the things I did wrong. And, and he was the judge and he was the juror and I better be good. You better be a good girl or he will punish you. Um, growing up, church was not optional. My mother was also raised, um, 
Catholic, raised by nuns. And so we, we were very committed to attending church. Um, so much so that whenever I became a teenager and, you know, I was beginning to rebel, uh, they would go to the morning service and I'd be like, Oh, I'm just going to go to the evening service. And, uh, I would get there and my friends were like, Hey, this is what we're doing. And my boyfriend would call. And, and so I would drive up to the church and I'd run in and I'd get a bulletin because in a Catholic bulletin, it'll tell you that, you know, okay, on November 20th, these are the the readings, and this is the gospel story that's going to be read. So then I'd sit in my car, and uh, and I would read, and I'd be like, okay, I got it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That way, if I got home, because mom had already been to church, she had already heard it. She, if she said, they pro- I hope my parents don't hear this, because I've never admitted this to them. <laughs> anyway, I mean, like, anyway, I almost invited them. I'm glad I didn't. Anyway, um, so I was like prepared. I know the story and I'm just going to lie my way through it. Uh, anyway, that was not near, that was just a taste of the rebellion that I would find myself in. Um, so fast forward and we've got all these kids and life was good. I mean, we were young. I had five kids before I was 29. We, we got married young. We started young. And so, um, his job was great. Life was good. My kids were healthy. Um, really nothing to complain about. We found ourselves in a position to buy what we called our, our dream home. We still call it the big house in Lake Charles. Um, we had a struggle as I studied the Bible more. I pulled from the Catholic church. My parents pulled back. That's a story in and of itself. Um, we did ultimately change churches. Um, and I was invited to a women's conference. And so I went and it was like, you know, my first little getaway for the weekend. Daddy's had got the babies. And I remember sitting at that women's conference and listening to those women tell their story. And I remember thinking, I don't have a story like that. I wasn't abused as a child. I wasn't abandoned. Um, I made some really poor choices that would come back to haunt me and I would work through. Um, but at the time it didn't feel like a poor choice. I, I was too far removed from it. Um, but I just remember thinking that guy they're talking about that redeemer, that man that they have a relationship with. I don't know him like that. And I want to know him. I want to know who he is. And, um, more than that, I really felt in that moment, God saying, you're going to do that. You're going to serve me. And I was like, sign me up. And I went home and I told Scott, I said, I heard from God and he wants me to serve him. And I will. And he was like, you know, I've got the sweetest husband ever. And he's like, oh, honey, you can do whatever, whatever you put your mind to. I know you will. Um, on September 21st of 2005, we were asleep. The TV was on for a reason because we were waiting to hear. Um, I'll never forget the words of the, um, meteorologist when he said, wake up Lake Charles, the hurricane has turned and you will take a direct hit. And I had five babies upstairs. We had already gone through some loss because Katrina had hit two weeks earlier and my husband's office had been destroyed, but not our home. And, uh, and we sat straight up in that bed and, uh, and they said, evacuate now. And, and so we did, we packed everything up 
all of us in two cars, five kids, two dogs. And we left. Little did we know that in that instant, our lives would change forever. We were homeless. Um, you see, Katrina had hit. So everybody that was displaced from New Orleans landed, you know, in all directions, uh, one being in our town. So anything that was up for rent prior to Katrina was not for rent. And now Rita has destroyed everything in our town. There are no homes and there are no homes for seven people and two dogs. Let's be honest. We could have rented an apartment, a one bedroom, but there was, there was no way. Um, so anyway, it was different. There was massive damage and that was a complete understatement. Um, within months, I got a call that my sister who was a severe drug addict had relapsed and her teenage daughter with disabilities, um, was also homeless. She couldn't live with her father. He's a musician and he travels and he called me and he said, I got to bring her somewhere and I'm bringing her to you. And, and I of course was like, absolutely. Um, within a few months of that, our oldest son began to find himself in trouble that was unexplainable and, um, and very, very scary. Um, at that point I realized that, um, Maybe the God that I knew about that was big and scary and judging, this was his judgment. This is what was happening. I felt very strongly that if life serving God looked like this, I didn't want any part of it. I didn't want to be part. It was so easy to love him and to worship him and to study um, his word when life was what I envisioned it to be. But when things began to crumble, then maybe what I had been taught about him was true. And I was being punished for all the wrong choices I had ever made. He was not someone I felt like I could trust and I wanted off the roller coaster. I put him back on the cross and I closed the chapter of my life of attending church, of Bible studies. I wanted him at arm's length the way he used to be. But what I was really good at is putting a smile on my face, regardless of the loss, regardless of the expectations that I faced, regardless of the fear that I had for my son, the insecurities that I was being punished, I quietly put on a mask of everything is great. I'm great and I'm fine. And I wear that mask well. It worked for a little while, but then I realized after some time, you know what? Things didn't get better. Things continued to happen. It had nothing to do with my desire to serve the Lord. And I missed him. I would hear worship music and I would miss him. I had gotten to the point that when I would stand in church and look at everybody else, I felt like everybody else is great. Everybody else's lives are great. And mine is crumbling. I didn't want any part of the ladies that I did community with anymore because we sat around a table and everybody was great everybody's kids were great and mine was not. And I was embarrassed and I was ashamed, but I'd hear worship music and I would just cry because I missed him. I missed him. Like I miss my husband when he leaves. I missed him, um, in the quiet moments when I felt like I, um, was too weak to go on. And I realized that we weren't immune to anything that was happening, regardless of my relationship with the Lord, whether I had him at arm's length or he was my best friend. 
we still suffered with kids with ADHD and anxiety and alopecia and bullying and, and all of those things. Um, we experienced serious, serious financial setbacks. Um, we ultimately two years after the hurricane, we moved here, not because of the hurricane. Um, we, it took us two years to get back into our home, the big house, as we called it. Um, but my husband got a job offer and our son was in a lot of trouble. And we had already pulled him out of school. He was being homeschooled. And we really saw it as an opportunity to start over. We're going to just start over. He's going to be fine if I'm moving somewhere and we start over. If we find a different church where everybody isn't so perfect, he'll be great. I'll be great. He'll be great. We'll be fine. Um, I masked fear. I masked shame. I wore a mask of control. The layers of masks that I wore were impressive because I could hide any pain and struggle that I was going through, not only from my family, but from anybody who saw me until one day I couldn't hide. Hurricane Harvey was making landfall. And I just wept. I still, we were not damaged, but I watched everybody else experienced what I had experienced. They lost. They cried. I served in our um, temporary shelters and I walked and held people's hands and I was like, I see you. I get it. You don't know where you're going to live. You don't know if your baby pictures are safe. It was, um, it was heartbreaking. The same week that Harvey hit days before, I had gotten a call that I had been diagnosed with melanoma cancer. Um, I was crippled by fear because I knew how long I'd had the mole and I knew how long I had masked the reality that something was wrong with me. And I should have checked on it. My son, um, had, was evicted from his apartment and was bouncing from place to place. He came, he stayed with us for a very short amount of time. And I realized that his drug use was, um, not okay. And very scary. The people he was around were not good. And I had to protect my other children. And so I put on the mask of protector and he became homeless and I was helpless. The only thing I could control was how I was going to respond to it all. And I refused to let it be too much for me. I refused to blame God. I refused to walk away from him this time. I found myself on my face in my closet, crying out to God and telling him, if this is my story, if this is my son's story, if this is your story, God, then I surrender. I realized in that moment that not only was God's plan for my life perfect, but I had to come to grips that his plan for my children and for my son's life was perfect, even if I didn't like it and I didn't want to be part of it. God was creating in my children who he wants them to be. And I was a bystander. And he said to me in that closet, do you trust me? And I heard it over and over again. Courtney, do you trust me? Within weeks of my son being homeless, we got a call that he was in jail. And that was a reprieve because at least I knew where he would sleep at night. And at least I knew he would eat. Addiction had led him to this place. Addiction was killing him and would kill him. 
if he didn't get help and addiction was winning. Back to my closet I went, crumbling under the reality of it all. Most of you know I um, serve in a very public arena in this town. And so I needed the mask of everything's great. This isn't happening to hide it from everyone. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to put on the mask of rescuer. I'm going to rescue him as I had done many, many times before. And God said, no, you're not because you're not his savior, Courtney. I am. Do you trust me? Now, in my closet, I stood up. I felt like a warrior. I've never felt so much strength and weakness together in my life. And I stood in that closet and he said, are you ready? Because we're going to battle and we will win. And I said, I am. Unlike before, when I walked away, I dug in, I prayed without ceasing. And I know that, you know, people may say, oh, that's cliche. But when I say I prayed without ceasing, I woke up every morning and I said, good morning, God, help me get out of bed. And he did. Good morning, God. I got to fix breakfast for these kids. And they knew we were honest with them from the beginning, but they hurt. I could see it. But mama's got to put a smile on her face and mama's got to do what mama does. And I've got to make it okay for this family because they're all looking at me. And I prayed when I made eggs and I prayed when I made coffee and I cried in silence. But I did it. I began to research mothers. But what happened to me is I began to become acutely aware of all the mothers around me that were suffering. It was like I could see beyond everyone's masks. I could sit at church and see mothers silently weeping and nobody realized it. I could see friends that maybe weren't sharing everything, but they were sharing enough for me to know they're in trouble. Their child's in trouble. They're hurting and they are not saying anything. God showed himself in ways that time that my son was in jail, um, that I, I could sit here all day and tell you times that he showed up. He showed up in strangers. He showed up in the Bible. He showed up in church. He, he showed up at a, um, a, a car repair shop in a way that would blow your mind. I can't, I don't have the time today to tell you all the stories and all the ways that he consistently reminded me, do you trust me? And I've got this. You just have to trust me. And, um, a lot of the story is my son's and I want him to share that. Um, and he does my relationship, just like going to church as a child was not optional. My relationship with the Lord not only was not optional, it was the only option for me. I replaced my mask of fear with a mask of peace, a mask of shame with surrender, doubt with trust and control with vulnerability. Psalm 107, and it's the card that's on your chair, says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. And this is my story. Um, I do pray that the more that I'm able to share my story, 
that people begin to grasp Romans 8.31, where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, life isn't perfect. Never was. Every day, my son surrenders to his addiction and he sends it to the Lord. He sends me pictures at every meeting that he goes to. And he's currently speaking at AA treatment centers, doing exactly what I'm doing today and sharing his story because that's where God heals him is when he can touch someone else. Um, this weekend, he and a friend are moving into a brand new home. That's a sober living home where they've invited other men to come and live, to help and walk alongside them in their journey. He speaks to parents and kids that call on him about what addiction looks like and how quickly it can consume you. So I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Certainly life didn't get easier. Just in the past few weeks, I have continued to feel led to serve the Lord. And I, uh, Hethel knows I've spent, I guess, two years now working on a ministry that I feel very called to do. And, uh, I finally got the website up and the Facebook page and, you know, all that stuff. And I hit publish on a Monday and, uh, and by Tuesday, the, the attacks and the crumbling began just in the past few weeks. Um, my father was diagnosed with bladder cancer and he is now living with me because he needs to be at MD Anderson, um, with my mother who has Alzheimer's. Um, Scott's grandfather passed away about a week ago and his brother died Tuesday. And I don't tell you those things for you to feel sorry for me, but I tell you those things because life is hard and I am burdened by the fact that as women and as mothers, we put a mask on and we put a smile on our face and we tell everybody I'm good. I've got this. I'm good. But nobody's telling their story. And people aren't seeing that regardless of the smile you may have, you may be struggling. And I know that I smile because regardless of the pain I feel right now and the grief and the loss that we've experienced, my joy doesn't come from myself. My joy comes from the Lord. My peace doesn't come from within me. It comes from him. And I know one thing is for certain, this is all temporary. It's just a season of my life right now. I'd rather it be spread out, but if it's going to be all at once, Lord, you've got me. I know this, my friend, my comforter, my source of strength is still on the throne. And whenever I feel weak and weary, he reminds me, Courtney, do you trust me? And my answer now and forever will be yes. I do. So this is part of my story. And, um, I pray that more and more people can be vulnerable and share their story. Because when you realize you're not alone, there's comfort in that. And so that was my goal for today. Anybody have any questions? Um, so when the hurricane hit, we evacuated to, uh, Mississippi first, and then we started making our way back. Um, 
to Louisiana. We landed in Lafayette for about four weeks because the city was shut down. You couldn't get in. Um, we knew that our home had been destroyed and we weren't going back home. Um, and we began to look, we, we would go into town, um, only because my dad owned a petroleum business. So they weren't letting everybody in, but because he owned a petroleum business, we would put on his shirts for his business. And we would go in because the only thing they were getting up and running was medical and gas at at that time. And so there were armed guards at every exit. And so we would go in and we knew we couldn't go home and we began to look, we had resolved that we would have to stay in Lafayette. And literally we had just told the kids, we're going to have to stay here, um, in Lafayette. And we got a call that there was a house that we could rent. And so we got back home about four weeks after that, um, and rented a home there. But then it took two years between insurance adjusters and rebuilding the home and things like that um, to move back in. So we bounced. I think we moved five times before we got home. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Let's see. Hamilton, number five, our fifth child was one. Two. I'm sorry, two. He was born in 2003. The hurricane hit in 2005. So I had a, so that would have mean I had a two year old, a three year old, a four year old, a six year old, six or seven, and then Christian was junior high. So those middle four were pretty young when it, between two and six when it hit. In church. He saw me in church. I, I didn't meet him there, but he saw me. He was standing in the back of church with his girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah. And he saw me and he knew that I was sitting next to a girl. Scott's um, a little bit older than me. And and so he knew that I was sitting next to a girl that was in a sorority that he knew. And he went back to the fraternity house and he asked her, he said, who was your sister sitting next to in church? And she said, "Um, oh, Courtney, but she's young. He was like, oh, no, I can't. And he did. And... (laughs) And the rest is history. Yeah. All right. It is a really good story. So Christian had been incarcerated. Um, I think it was Valentine's Day that we found out that he was incarcerated. Um, and my prayer during that time was you keep him there until you teach him. And uh, that was my prayer. Just keep him, Lord. And, uh, so anyway, we were getting our daughter ready, uh, to go off to college. That was our number three. And, um, her seat on her car had ripped and, you know, with six kids, you have to be very, um, conscious of your money and how you spend it. And so my husband does that beautifully. He's a financial consultant. I, on the other hand, I'm like, whatever. Um, anyway, so he found a place that could fix her seat. And he sent me and it's just, that's just not something that I do. Like that's typically daddy does it. So Chandler and I went and it was off of highway six, this just little hole in the wall place that was going to repair her seat. And I walk in and it's, it's literally like a walk-in closet with a desk and a computer and this very tall man. And he says, um, okay, let me look at it. He realizes no, it, we can't just sew it back up. We need to replace the whole thing. So something that was $150 is now $350. And, and so I call Scott and, you know, we're, we're literally weeks, a week from bringing her. And you, if you haven't sent a kid off to college yet, it's, it's ridiculous. The amount of money, I mean, the college in and of itself is ridiculous, but then the dorm and the, this and the, that, I mean, it's like every time we turned around, we needed something else. And, um, and so anyway, 
I call Scott. The man talks to him. He can hear the frustration in my husband's voice. He sees the frustration in my face and, and he sits down and, and my husband says, yeah, that's fine. And, um, starts kind of pecking at his computer and he stops and he looks at me and he goes, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. And he quoted a Bible verse and I was like, okay, that's cute. You know, Bible verse, get me out of here. And, uh, and he kept kind of pecking and then he stopped again. And now I wish I knew the Bible verses, all of them that he said. And he stopped and he looked at me and he quoted another Bible verse. And I was like, okay, all right. You know, too. That's impressive. And, uh, and he says, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, just hurry, just hurry. I'm ready to go. And he's like, I'm so sorry. Cause he's literally just pecking at the computer. And he says, I don't typically do this. He said, I own, I own the place, but my manager is on vacation right now. And he said, so I'm filling in for him. And he said, this is my full-time job. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. You know, that's so sweet. And he says, um, I'm actually a full-time prison minister. And I just, I froze and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And I said, what jail? And he said, Harris County. And he looked at me almost giddy, like a child that was getting a toy. And he was like, why do you know someone there? And it was the first time I had looked at a stranger and said, my son. And he was like, he stopped and he turned and he looked at me and he said, drugs. I said, yes. And he said, you have to know today that God's got him and he's got big plans for him and you will be okay. And I was like, okay. And he said, um, could you give me his name? And I said, absolutely. And I said, will you find him? And will you give him a hug? Because I couldn't touch him at visitations. We visited just like you see in the movies, even worse. You visit in a very stone cold area with a very thick glass and you use a phone and only the person with the phone can speak to the incarcerated. Um, and it took me a while to go visit. We talked every day. We did Bible study every day. He'd call me and I would pray over him every day. And, um, he found himself in positions where people would wake him up in the middle of the night and say, Hey, you. You're the guy they said would pray for me. Get up and pray for me. Um, and so I, I, I asked him at the car store. It's, it's the only thing. I, I don't even know his last name. I said, will you find him? And will you hug him and tell him that we're going to be okay? And he said, absolutely. And a couple of weeks went by and Christian called and he said, Mom, this man, Tim, came and got me. And he said he prayed with me. He said I spent hours with him. And he said, it was unbelievable, mom. And uh, from that moment on, Tim met with my son about once or twice a week for the remainder of the time that he was in Harris County and ministered to him um, because the, the jail system is so broken. And I'm not saying it was broken because he was there. He was there because he needed to be there. Um, but when the space would get too tight and they needed to shift people around. At one point they woke him up in the middle of the night and they took him to Louisiana, um, about six hours away. Um, then he called and said, I'm, I'm, I'm in Louisiana. And then they brought him back. But when they brought him back, there wasn't, um, a cell that had room 
for him in the drug offender cells. So they put him in a maximum security cell. And so he lived with men who were in there for murder and he could reach out and touch the guy next to him that was in there for capital murder. And uh, he was the only Caucasian in the cell and he was the only one that they would allow to be in the cell. When other white men came in, they were either beaten or threatened until they were too fearful to stay. But they found favor with my son and he would pray with them and he would do Bible study with them. And, uh, and that's where he remained until he was sentenced to a, uh, court ordered treatment facility, state run treatment facility, where he went for the last uh, three or four months of his sentence. And, uh, and then he's been in sober living and, and working on himself. Is how we all wear, you know, the mask of motherhood or just human whenever we go out. What would be your advice on how we overcome that? Because I know for myself personally, the older I get, the less tolerance or not tolerance, less I want to be around like that fake, that fakeness, that shallowness. And I really um, desire to build a connection with people and be real and share my story. But I also have that fear because mm-hmm. people gossip and talk and, mm-hmm. you know, how do we? overcome that so we can spread, you know, our story and our purpose and God's purpose in our lives. Well, I think for me, it was, it was letting go of the control and the fear of what others were going to think and, and really coming to the conclusion that not, not only are the seasons of the pain and the struggles that we go through temporary, but my time on earth is temporary and God's given me a purpose and he's given us all a purpose. And that purpose is told through the story in the life that we experience. And when we edit it and Instagram worthy it and Facebook worthy it, and we paint this picture, I don't think that people realize how you inadvertently are hurting other people. And it did begin to bother me because of the position that I'm in in the community. When people would stop me and say, Oh my gosh, you just have it all together. Your family's so beautiful. Yes, they are precious. And if you look at a picture of them, you can look at it and say, that's the perfect family. But it pains me when people look at me and think that it's all perfect because it's just not. And, um, and so for me, it came to a point of being okay with being vulnerable and being honest with others and then letting God do what he needs to do with it. And, and so, um, I know people will continue to judge me and I know people have opinions of me and you know what? That's okay. Because the only opinion I'm worried about is the opinion of the Lord. And I have a favorite saying in the leadership position that I'm in with my other board members. And I tell them all the time, just like in coffee, we got to be cream that will rise to the top. And we cannot let all the dirt and the muck at the bottom bring us down because we were, we're overcomers. My strength comes from the Lord and he has already won. And so that's, but, but being vulnerable and then not letting the enemy tell you different, like, Oh, don't share that. Don't be vulnerable. Don't let people know you're hurting. What are they going to think of you? What does it matter? It is, it just doesn't matter. A lot of the masks that that I wear, I still put them on, um, are protection or, or, or my way of trying to protect myself. But 
it's replacing those masks of falseness with the reality um, of what God has done in my life. And, um, and yeah, sometimes I smile when I don't feel like smiling. And sometimes I'll say, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> right? I am fine. And I know I'm not completely fine, but you know what? I am fine. I truly am fine because God sustains me. And so regardless of what's going on around me, I just keep my eyes on Him. We're so glad you joined us for Courtney's story today. You know, one of the reasons why we feel that Storytellers Live has been so powerful and so popular is that we're all encouraged when we hear what God has done personally in other people's lives. And so it's such a good reminder to us that when we fail to set aside our own masks and to share what God's doing in our lives, no matter how messy it might be, we basically deprive other people of hope or encouragement that they may desperately need that day. God speaks to our hearts so often through other people and their stories. So when we feel that nudge to share a part of our life with someone, and it doesn't mean we have to share every single messy private detail, we feel that nudge to share. Let's remember that our mess may be someone else's saving grace that day. It may be exactly what they need to take the next step. We'll be back next week with another new story. We would love for you to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, especially on iTunes. Those ratings help the podcast to reach new ears. You can also follow us on social media for the latest news and announcements. And if you're interested in attending a local gathering, be sure to go to our website, storytellerslive.org. You can check the listings there to find out if we are in a city near you. And you can also sign up for the newsletter, which will let you know about all the different gatherings and their dates. Thank you for choosing to listen to Storytellers Live today, and we hope that you'll join us again soon.